Hey Vancouver, how are you? I'm Mike Howell and welcome to episode 3 of 12th and Canby, the podcast. On today's show, Andy Yan. Who's Andy Yan? Well, he's a lot of things. He's an urban planner, he's a teacher and the director of SFU City Program. But Andy is probably best known in media circles as the data guy. Perhaps even a data crusader. He's the guy who crunches numbers and information to produce some amazing and colorful uh, insight into real estate, empty homes, and who's buying what in this town. So here we go. Let's hear from the man himself. Andy Yan, welcome to the Couriers Podcast Studio. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Mike. I want to start by having you first give us some background about yourself. Um, sadly, not everyone in this town knows who you are. <laughs> so, Andy Ann, explain yourself, sir. Explain myself. Yeah. All right. Um, I was born and bred in the fine city of Vancouver, in East, in, in East Vancouver, where I grew up. I was a t- I attended um, Vancouver Technical Secondary, a uh, Go Grad '93, and <laughs> and grew up there, and went to SFU as an undergrad in both political science and geography and from there I went to a from a I went from, from there I went for my master's in urban planning at UCL at the University of California Los Angeles and then kind of spent some time practicing around the uh, practicing around the United States in terms of Los Angeles San Francisco and New York City yeah and then uh, back in wow was it 2004 Five two thousand six, I came back to town. Mm-hmm. I got this this phone call from Bing Tom saying, "Do you want to come join my team?" And in that microsecond, I said yes. And and most of that time was just really kind of um, working with Bing in his various phenomenally amazing, complex, and thrilling urban planning uh, projects around around Canada and the United States. And really, after that, just establishing his his research and development division at uh, BTA Works. Right. So uh, really, my background has kind of kind of ebbed and uh, kind of entered in. Uh, came back to bank coming back to Vancouver has really kind of grown from uh, working with Bing Tom Architects and and BTA Works to now being the director of the city program at Simon Fraser right. University. So where did your love for data come? Has that been with mm-hmm. you for years, or is this something relatively new for you? Mm-hmm. Well, it's 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 actually it's it's a love of data, but then more driven by a curiosity of the city. Right. That um, really being very curious of how cities operate. That I always wanted a I I, I wanted to find an in towards understanding cities, and as a consequence, um, I, I I discovered data, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's actually kind of funny how a lot of times life is about just being at the right. It's just showing up. Like, right. you know, as Woody Allen said, you know, what, 90% of life is just showing up. Right. And at, when I showed up at the fine doors of UCLA, um, it was really seeing the emergence when data was really first digitized and made largely available through the internet. And I, I mean, it seems weird that, you know, that, that, that I talk about it now, but, yeah. you know, even... 2000, I guess we're talking about 16 years ago, it was really just emerging. And then so it's kind of like when you just pull this little string, that when you start pulling on this little string, it just keeps on and following it, it just keeps on kind of developing, emerging and changing as as you yourself change as a scholar and also as a professional, that I just kind of fell into it and then just just kind of... 
I, I like to think most of my business is curiosity driven. Right. And, you know, following a certain series of questions through which I, in my particular case, I, 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 I look at it through data. But then, of course, other people can look at it through stories. They can look at it through, through, um, through design. So that's really kind of how I fell into it. You've become a real uh, data crusader, if I can call you that, in this city. Is that, a, is that fitting? Or? Well, I, I actually would like to think uh, part of a number of folks who are, more importantly, I think, a crusader for the city. Right. That data is certainly my one of my specialties. That um, it 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 is one of the things that, through circumstance, that I found a calling, a ability to view the city through data. And I think, but I think just as more importantly, have a means of telling a story and sharing that story. Mm-hmm. That um, knowledge is knowledge unless it's shared. Right. And I think fundamentally, it's not only just having these very complex data sets and doing these incredibly um, difficult statistical models with maps, but then it's how do you tell the story? How do you share the story? How do you t- t- say that this is an important element that people should know about? And how and and it's also how those those uh, data stories are connected towards people's narratives of their city. So you talked about sharing data, and apparently. Uh and Ian, the data crusader, struck again overnight. I picked up my Globe and Mail this morning, <laughs> at, which, by the way, I do read a newspaper and I subscribe. And uh, that's just a little plug uh, for the newspaper business. Everybody subscribe to a newspaper. Gold papers. Anyway, I picked up the Globe and uh, there was this headline, nearly all detached homes in Vancouver assessed at one million or more. Story was built around data from you. So fill the listeners in on, on, on what you found there. Well, it's it's actually part of a almost oh gosh, when we established BTA Works, I think it was two thousand and eight. So then now it's almost a eight year odyssey of mapping the million dollar line for single family homes in the city of Vancouver, yeah. and uh, and and it's 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 actually in part I think due to some of the innovations, um, at, and I, I think it's important to realize the innovations within the city of Vancouver, particularly when it comes to the open data catalog. That fundamentally there was a decision uh, eight years ago that government data, that's that city city data, be made available to the general public, and I think that that's incredible. Uh, that, that that's an incredibly innovative and forward thinking. Um, vision that, that that actually occurred. So, uh, basically, for the last um, last couple of years, uh, I've been mapping the idea of where are the million dollar homes in the city of Vancouver, and and so with that project, it's been it's been extraordinary just seeing that. I think the first map was in two thousand and. Oh, what was it? 2000, oh, 2009, 2008, and finding out that about 50% or slightly, yeah, slightly, at about 50% of single family homes in the city of Vancouver were over a million dollars. And then just kind of watched that systematically progress. And, 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 and most of those homes were, of course, east of Maine with right. little pockets in the southeast corner of the city. Yeah. But then actually, how every year with the updates from BC Assessment and the city of Vancouver, you see that million dollar map line just kind of just grow and grow and grow right. so that from that from that 50% which incidentally um, there was some new 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 how, new historic data that came out that actually allowed us to kind of go back to way back to that year 2006 right. where um, if you didn't do 
if you didn't account for inflation, it was something like 9%. If you did in- include foundation, um, inflation, it was 13% of single-family homes in Vancouver were over a million dollars. But that, you know, just over that time from just 2006, and you think about it, it's only really, you know, now 11 years yeah. that we find that we're now at a point in the city of Vancouver where Basically all, I mean, all single family homes uh, at 90, 99.7% are now over a million dollars. And I think one of the most interesting things about this about this data is when we look at the idea of a single family home is really how important the idea of owning your home, a means of housing security, is towards the narrative of the city. Right. That the founding essence of the city, if you will, way back in 80, 1886, but then really in the teens, the pre-World War years, was really about being able to purchase your own home mm-hmm. through modest means. Right. A lot of people were were largely working. Um, I mean, were I mean, largely in industries that used to be in this neighborhood. Right. That um, Mount Pleasant. Mount Pleasant. Yeah. That um, that it was part of the idea of why you moved to Vancouver. Yeah. You can make a life for yourself. You can build a life for yourself and your family. And it's interesting to kind of see how over time, and a very short amount of time in the life of this city, that idea, at least for a single-family home, is effectively over for most people with local incomes in the city of Vancouver. So what do you do with that data, though? And maybe just back mm-hmm. up a little mm-hmm. bit. Just explain kind of very simply how you were able to arrive at that conclusion that nearly, you know, all homes are, are, are a million bucks or more. Is that through assessment data? How did, how did you do that? It's uh, it's all through assessment data. Yeah. And it's assessment data that was made available by the city of Vancouver on all properties in the city. of in, in the city. And really, it's taking all that data, uh, focusing on areas that are zoned as single-family homes, and then mapping it uh, using us uh, using using some computer software, okay. and then seeing how that um, how that changes through time, and also how it changes through area yeah. of, of the city. And and there and there was a time that there was a very distinct line in terms in the city of Vancouver between those homes that were over a million and under a million dollars. So what value is this when you do this? Mm-hmm. It looks great in a graph, and people mm-hmm. can see immediately. The viewer can see mm-hmm. that. Wow. This is, you know, all the red or whatever you use in terms of color, that it's quite significant. But what do you do with that data? I think what you do with the data is begin to inform conversations on housing. And I think as attached to housing in terms of being the economic kind of attractiveness of the city, the competitiveness of the city, that that is where the data is part of the greater workings of dialogue and discussions of where the city's going, where has it gone, where will it go. And do you, do you think it's influenced anything locally or provincially, your data in any way that governments, politicians have looked at that and said, hey, we should shift here, we should shift there because of your data? Mm. Um, <laughs> it's 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 hard to say. I yeah. you know um, I have, am of course a part of a greater community. I like to think that we're that uh, SFU is being is trying to help develop in terms of data, in terms of really informing the public of their own data of what's happening in their city. So I think as part of a greater whole of informing people about the dynamics of the city, I think it perhaps has 
has some effect. Uh, one yeah. hopes. Right. Um, I, I mean, as much as like say writing for the Courier, you know, sure. do you hope that you've informed you know the discussions around the city about Absolutely. what's happening in City Hall? And and <laughs> and so you know, in, it, it's 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 to that extent that I I like to think that it 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 does to the extent that it gives people a sense of their city. Well, I hear your name come up occasionally at City Hall, especially around the empty homes mm-hmm. data that uh, mm-hmm. the city had mm-hmm. hydro and others used hydro data. They had some mm-hmm. firm do that. Mm-hmm. But I remember Jeff Meg standing up and talking about your data as well. So it seems that there is some influence there mm-hmm. uh, on what they do. And what they did with that data, of course, was say, we need an empty homes tax. Do you agree with the empty homes tax? I think that with the empty homes tax, it fundamentally begins to understand that housing markets are about interventions both in the supply and the demand side of things. And if anything, it's to advanced really demand side interventions which we've actually been incredibly active with since 1949 with the establishment of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And, 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 and I talk about it to the extent of understanding that home ownership, the idea of assisted home ownership, of government-backed loans, was basically one of the principal drivers towards establishing uh, the idea of owning your home in post-World War II Canada. And, in, and, and you certainly see that effect in the city of Vancouver in terms of how the city grew and erupted in growth after the Second World War. And so I think that it's, 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 it's part of that discussion of, the, of demand-side interventions, particularly in activities that I think collectively we deem as, as distorting the market. So this, this figure of 10,500 empty homes that council revealed a couple of years back, mm-hmm. the new census data... Does that give you any more information? Are we in that same ballpark? Or are we more or less? No, we're a lot more. Yeah, and, how many more? Uh, it's, I, I, I think it's almost double. If, if yeah. memory serves me right, it's it's it's, it's almost like twenty two thousand. Wow. Um, if memory serves me right, but but um, I should double check that. But then, but, but I think the fact of the matter is, is that it's it's going to be. It's going to be different numbers because they follow different methodologies, mm-hmm. and and with with what the city did with their methodology is a lot different from what I did with my census methodology, and yet at the same time it's saying that well it's not zero, yeah, nor is it a million, right? That it is somewhere in between this ballpark. We could probably have other studies, and I would actually encourage a few other studies to understand this phenomenon yeah. that you know that that the fact that we we have we are in the midst of a housing crisis for very for a lot of demographics and yet at the same time there seems to be plenty of units available that really what is going on mm-hmm. and how do we have that collective response toward that that response for the community that this is not that this is or is not really the type of city we want I want to talk a little bit more about City Hall. I was talking to a counselor a couple of weeks ago, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast, and I, I think uh, I'd like to get Andy Yan on. You know, he'd be a great guest. I said, Andy Yan, tell them to stop throwing grenades at the city and come up with some solutions, said the counselor. <laughs> well, I'd like to think I'm part of the Mike Howe show. <laughs> that, um, and, and, and it really is actually something that uh, I, I know that certainly um, – and it goes into this fundamental belief, and, and I think it was it was incredibly summarized by the Washington Post recently. Yeah. Democracy dies in the dark. Right. And that you as a journalist shine a light into that darkness, and I as an analyst, as an urban planner, design the light bulbs and flashlights for you. 
Wow, that's nice. And so a lot of my work is actually working quite closely to various journalists, various writers to shed light onto our democracy. When did you start doing that? Like, when Do you remember the first phone call you had where somebody was interested in your research? Because I can't read a real estate story now without you being quoted. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, but... You seem to be the go-to guy. How did you become that guy? A lot of it is about the vision and generosity of being Tom Mm -hmm. in the service of his city that I was, I'm incredibly grateful grateful and honored by that trust and that support that he gave me to really share about the dynamics of what's happening in the city of Vancouver. And I am going to be incredibly grateful for him for the rest of my life. So I wanted to ask you, Andy, about the um, collection of data, the, the census data, the assessment uh, data, and whether you can draw a straight line to City Hall or to Victoria and look at that data and ask, well, this happened under Mayor Gregor Robertson's watch or this happened under Premier Christy Clark's watch. It, that is proof of what's happened in this city. So no matter how they try to talk themselves out of blaming another government or the market or this or that, that's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty good evidence that uh, things have kind of gone sideways under their watch, isn't it? The 2016 census is actually quite unique towards the fact that it covers two levels of government that were distinctly within this timeframe. That the 2016 to 2011 to 2016 really were under distinctly through, not necessarily Christy Clark, but under the Liberals, but then also with Gregor Robertson and the Vision that they were that they were leadership, uh, they were leadership genres. And I think what it does with the 20, 20 the changes from 2011 to 2016 is talk about the consequences of those policy choices that each level of government have respectively taken. And from that, from those choices, here are the consequences. Right. And I think it very much comes to data where data is about truth and consequences. And this is what has happened in terms of the dynamics of the city, the region, and the province that the 2016 census allows us to understand under a very specific set of leaders. What, what is the biggest misconception about what you do? I understand data to be helpful to a conversation. There seems to be a misconception that you're trying to grind people in in a different way and say, mm-hmm. you know, almost like w- waving your finger at them. But that's not what you're doing, is it? No. Well, I think that's the biggest challenge culturally um, in, in, for, in terms of thinking of data is that data isn't about destiny, it's about direction. And that these are marks in towards the consequences of particular choices. And that the data is, again, shedding light. It is part of the beacon of, of marking how those choices have had a consequence towards the population. And I think that that's really part of, I think, a modernization. And if you will, growing up of the city of Vancouver to understand that data begins a conversation, it doesn't end it. Okay. We're just going to have to pause there uh, for a bit. Uh, We're going to alert our listeners uh, about some of the other podcasts on the Press Play Network. We'll be right back with more from uh, Andy Ann. Hi, I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Tyler Orton. And we co-host BIV's podcast on a weekly basis. 
What are we talking about, Tyler? Real estate, retail, technology. We have lots of news going on with regards to the resources sector as well. Everything you could possibly hope for when it comes to the West Coast business community. Listen to us on the Press Play Network at pressplaynetwork.ca. Also go to biv.com and we will post the show every single week. Okay, we're back with Andy Yan. I wanted to talk um, about uh, 2015, I believe, is when you were were accused of, if I read this correctly, you were accused of racism for research into foreign ownership and house prices on Vancouver's west side. That that must have surprised you. It was surprising because of where many of those accusations came from. Yeah. You know, where they were coming from were seemingly from people largely engaged in the real estate industry, largely, largely, um, largely white, white, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I, was, I, 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 I found it curious yeah. because the nature of that research was actually about the issue of connectivity. And it was the idea that Vancouver real estate is connected, that it's connected in particular, the, the, that study focused on the connection between global money as well as cheap money. Yeah. That we are living in this incredible era of cheap money through which I think is expressed itself in terms of the built form, in terms of residential real estate prices. Mm-hmm. Really, my point of that study was actually one of how we're actually all related towards these greater happenings in the, in the world. And remind the listener again of what exactly you were looking for and what, what you came up with there. Well, my first thing was actually looking at homes with mortgages. I was looking at um, at ownership at ownership uh, records and actually looking at these uh, looking at really and and I think most people uh, uh most people actually most people missed this point was the fact that the mass majority of these high-end single family homes on on a few neighborhoods on the west side of Vancouver were mortgaged. Yeah. That these traditional ideas of people hop, you know, coming out of YVR showing up with bags of money purchasing homes outright didn't happen. Right. That the mass majority of the time they were financed, that they had a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And within that mortgage, it was just interesting to see that, you know, with the existing literature, that this was not just done on a whim, that this is actually part of my kind of 20 year research agenda in, in Vancouver's understanding our connections to the Pacific Rim. That, um, that 66% of those units were being bought by folks with non-anglicized Chinese names, mm-hmm. which was used as a kind of proxy measure towards understanding those who perhaps have access to global capital around this part of the world. Right. Now, what people actually also miss out of that, uh, out of that uh, slide deck, out of that paper, was really actually how my assumption was very much folks actually have, hard, have a hard time connecting up to the local economy. Mm-hmm. That um, very much the and and this is through a number of academic papers looking at participation by folks in 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 uh, by by well by 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 visible minorities in the city where they where they don't have the kind of earning potentials that you would think and so my supposition was that this is largely made possible through the access of both cheap money and global money mm-hmm. and it's in the meeting of the two that has helped produce the kind of real estate market that we see in that part of Vancouver. But then I think there are there's some really interesting um, advance work building upon some of these patterns that are seeing how those types of activities and those types of connections actually resonate throughout the residential real estate market in the city of Vancouver and metropolitan Vancouver. 
So you touched a little bit on um, that side of the city. Um, mm-hmm. What is happening in the southwest side of the city? The, the census data seems to mm. show more mm. and more people have moved out of there. And that um, I think uh, my colleague Jane, uh, Jen uh, St. Dennis wrote a piece based on your research saying that uh, uh, I think it was the least dense neighborhoods in Vancouver, like the southwest side, at about 9% of the city's residents. Well, well, that's how, about how, interesting. How did you figure that out? Well, I mean, we, we it, it, it's where you begin. I mean, it, it's funny. The, the 2016 census was only three variables. Yeah. But it's kind of knowing those variables inside and out and finding those connections that, um, in this case, how they were connected geographically and how they differed geographically, that I was able to come out with that calculation. Right. And it, it's, it's really interesting when we start begin looking at densities in the city of Vancouver, that when we look at, you know, and this is, this is, these are parameters that were done by actually by the Sierra Club in the United States as measures that, you know, of units of one to 10 dwelling units per hectare, which is about, hectare is about a city block. It's about like the track, uh, the inside area of the track of a four, of a 400 meter um, track mm-hmm. area, but basically it's a city block. And it's interesting to kind of take a look at that, take a look at that kind of yeah. density. And we find that only about 8% of the city lives in that type of density, but that occupies almost a third of the area of the city. So what should we be doing then? Uh, rezone the entire city for townhomes, as Bob Rennie once told me? Well, I, I think one has to be very careful about just mass rezonings because it isn't just about mass rezoning. It's just about how it connects up to other things. Again, connection. That how is it connected to transportation? How is it connected up to both cultural and social infrastructure? How is it connected up to really economic activity? Mm-hmm. That it isn't just about this kind of dumb mass rezoning, but it actually is. And I think, I think where Vancouver has thrived in the history is actually when it did it smart, when it did it with some considered thought. And really, I think that that's really part of the discussion here, that it isn't that we live in these vast tracts of single-family homes, incidentally. It was the fact that there is this area of town that actually is single-family homes, but then there are also these interesting areas of density, Throughout right. the city, like that same study actually found these really neat pockets of density that isn't expressed by just a tower. Mm-hmm. That density can be expressed in many different forms, and in particular, density that supports connection and community and families or children can actually be found throughout the city, right. and that it doesn't necessarily have to come in the form of a tower. So you must get extremely excited when you just talked about the assessment data, census data. I mean, do you block time off and nobody's allowed to call you? I mean, <laughs> you get excited about this stuff, don't you? I I get excited, but when I share it, right? Not when it sits on my desk, you know, encrypted, sitting on some hard drive, right? It it it, it data data is starts the conversation. It doesn't end it. And I think that thriving, vibrant cities have conversations. They don't have silences. And one thing that, that I mean, going back to our earlier conversation in terms of that study I did in November was really how people tried to silence, like people tried silencing conversations about affordable housing, about where the city was going by accusations and whispers of racism. Right. And I think these were largely made by people who fundamentally didn't understand 
racism and racism and much less the legacies of racism in the city of Vancouver in British Columbia. Yeah. I mean, my family's presence has witnessed some of the darkest periods of racialized histories in British Columbia. Your great-grandfather. My great-grandfather came to, Van- came to Vancouver paying the head tax. Right. And that is part of our history. It is how we got here. But then we don't need to be anchored by it. We ought to be informed by that history. Okay, so uh, we're getting close to the end here, Andy. Um, what are you going to be working on next? What am I going to be working around next? Well, I think I'm, I'm going to be probably looking a bit more at land use and land prices and assessment prices. I think really looking at some of the, uh, some of the um, consequences of, of, of the type of housing prices that we have in terms of demographics. Again, really connecting up between uh, land values and census data and then seeing what will come out. I think um, more importantly, um, because I actually do have it on my phone, that in uh, he 68 days will be the release of the age and gender, as well as type of dwelling characteristics of the 2016 census. You have that in your phone. I have that on my phone and a countdown. He's showing me. And you're counting it down too. I am counting it down. I'm counting it down. And in 246 days, we'll know even more about immigrant and ethnocultural diversity, as well as housing in in Canada. So yes, these are are salad days for me. Well, we look forward to having you back uh, on the show. I'm, I'm sure we can talk uh, about a lot more uh, of what you do and, and, and the data collection. And I, I hope this was uh, helpful to the listeners, was helpful for me, uh, for you coming in and explaining a little bit more about what you do. So uh, in the meantime, uh, go get them. And uh, <laughs> thanks again. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Okay, so that's our show. Thanks for listening. As you just heard, Andy has got a lot to say, and we hope to have him on a future podcast. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for the show, you can reach me by email at mhowell at vancourier.com. I'm on Twitter at Howlings. Look for me on Facebook. You can listen to previous episodes on the Courier's website or at the Press Play Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.